Hello and welcome to episode 323 of the Fabulous Pelton Cast, sponsored by our friends at Pagliacci Pizza. I'm your co-host, Kevin Pelton. And I'm Tristan Carcino. And we are coming to you from Renton, Washington, home of the Super Bowl 48 champion Seattle Seahawks. Well, it's a sad week in Seattle sports as we are remembering a titanic figure across pro sports throughout this country, but someone who called the Seattle area home for an extended period of time and, you know, was a fixture, not not a fixture because he he didn't appear that frequently, but uh, when he did show up, it lent an air of gravitas to any event he attended, whether it was the crossover, Seattle Storm games, Sonics games, etc. And that is, of course... The great Bill Russell, who died Sunday at age 88, legendary 11-time champion with the Boston Celtics, later coached the Sonics to their first playoff appearance in 1974-75, the second of his four seasons as head coach before settling in Mercer Island. Uh, Russell, long a Hall of Famer as a player, also inducted as a coach last year, honoring his time with the Sonics as well as more famously the uh, player-coach stint at the end of his career with the Celtics, where he became the first black coach in any major American pro sport, uh, a trailblazing figure, the namesake of the Bill Russell Finals MVP award, and fittingly honored with the Presidential Medal of Freedom by Barack Obama in 2010. Yeah, I mean, a legendary career and life in general for Bill Russell. You know, there are some who argue that he's the greatest athlete of all time or the greatest basketball player of all time. And when you look at what he had to go through to do what he was doing as a player, you have to at least say, maybe even if he, over over the longest period of time, doesn't go down as the greatest NBA player ever, might have the most substantial career of any NBA player ever. Yeah, the most impact. I mean... You know, I think one of the things we've seen is we often see when a, a figure like this passes away is so many stories of, you know, Bill Russell's uncanny ability to, you know, be ahead on social issues throughout his life and his career. And, and obviously, you know, not just race, but other elements of equality. And, you know, I think that as much as the the being the ultimate winner in a team sports setting is going to be his legacy. Absolutely. And you see him even now, there is a photo of him or a video of him recently, like taking a knee in solidarity uh, with players, obviously from his home here. Uh, and Bill Russell continued to do that through his entire career. Yeah, I mean... Or entire life. Yeah. I When we talk about players, you know, being more socially, becoming more socially conscious within the past decade plus here in pro sports, it's really a return to what was commonplace in Bill Russell's era because, you know, it was a daily struggle he as had an to. athlete and as a black yes. man in this country at that point, especially especially doing it in, in Boston mm-hmm. at that point. Uh, we saw Bill Russell. We were at one of the Mercer Island parks and got out and, like, Bill Russell was parking next to us and it's just like, holy shit. It was kind of wild just being like, that's maybe the greatest NBA player of all time. And there's no fanfare, right? Yeah, that's the other thing. It's like he, he carried himself so casually, constantly dressed with a, in a cap and jacket. Uh, I can picture it in my head, certainly. And, you know, uh, I, I didn't have the privilege of seeing him in that kind of a random setting. But, you know, as I mentioned earlier, anytime he was at Key Arena or at SPU for the crossover, it was like, this is the, the imprinter that this is a big moment. Bill Russell was rolling through the crossover? He was there, yeah. Oh, man. I think the in 2019, like the 
The, the t- he I, played. He did, he did not play. Uh, he and Lenny Wilkins were both there. I saw some of those photos posted by, by Jamal Crawford of the crossover account in the last couple of days here. So, I mean, again, you know, uh, what an incredible career, what an incredible life for Bill Russell. So, all right, well, uh, as we talk about his time coaching the Sonics, uh, fittingly, we drink the green and gold here, lemon lime pilsner from our friends at Ruben Brews. It's Ruben's Brews is part of their Unbound series. Uh, the Our Unbound series is all about adding a twist to our favorite year-round beers. And in this case, we squeezed in some lemon and lime to our Czech-style Pilsner. Zingy citrus flavors elevate our crisp and clean Pilsner to new heights of refreshment. Wow, I'm expecting new heights of refreshment. It's got kind of a Sprite vibe to it somehow. You mean because it's lemon lime? <laughs> yes. Somehow. That's how. It does not particularly taste like Sprite, though, is it is still beer. Uh, also this week, want to send uh, our best wishes to get well soon to Pete Carroll, who has been absent from Seahawks practice after testing positive for COVID-19 earlier in the week. Uh, also, it's a farewell this week to KJ Wright, who signed a one-day contract with the Seahawks before announcing his retirement, as did J.R. Sweezy, both members of the Super Bowl 48 champions. A pro bowler in 2016, Wright finished his career fourth in Seahawks history in solo tackles, uh, You know, a legendary part of this Legion of Boom era defense and fixture who outlasted pretty much everyone but Bobby Wagner as part of that defense. Maybe the most unsung member of the Super Bowl winning defense. For sure. Uh, I mean, the play that stands out to me the most that KJ Wright made was the interception against the Vikings last year or in the COVID Dude. season when he, he picked that ball off after I think they just scored a touchdown. He picked it off and then took it back and it was just like, we're freaking on like KJ Wright <laughs> somehow elevated even more at the end of his time in Seattle. Yeah. I mean, that was arguably, even though it wasn't his pro bowl season, 2020 was arguably his best season. It was the only time he made the NFL 100 was last year when he was an unsigned free agent at the time. That's kind of wild. Uh, But how KJ, right. And then to be that close to retirement, but also like coming back home, doing it with the Seahawks. I saw somebody actually, I was listening to, uh, uh, (laughs) <laughs> I did drop a car off. It was very, very early in the morning, and I listened to a few minutes of Brock and Salk's show, which it's nice to check in every once in a while about what was going on. And Brock was taking it as, he was like, you could see, like, say what you will about Pete Carroll, but all these players returning home and and paying tribute, basically, like to their time with the Seahawks, wanting to retire him, both him and Sweezy. And I obviously we give Pete Carroll credit, but KJ Wright went pretty far out of his way to not give Pete Carroll credit when you when you heard his interview with <laughs> Mike John. Well, yeah. Well, in, in terms of the the scheme element, yes. I I definitely think that obviously Pete Carroll matters. Pete Carroll is who curated the culture in Seattle, right? He he has put together this this group of coaches and the organization in general. Obviously, him and Schneider, but like. I, I think more so it's about a culture that exists possibly even beyond Pete Carroll. And I think that's what I would point to more, more than specifically like KJ Wright love to work with Pete Carroll. I think it is the city. I think it's the fan base. I think it's the organization. It was Paul Allen and Jody Allen and the infrastructure, Pete Carroll being part of that. But the Seahawks do even beyond one individual coach. They still have something special. The Seahawks still matter and still mean something at least for now. I think also it was especially about an era of players who came into the league at similar eight times 
and grew up together here in Seattle. Like that's something a lot of them have talked about. The number of the players who you know have made the Seattle area home. You know they they met their significant others here. They started their families All the here. All the Munch Bar in Bellevue. No. <laughs> <laughs> the Joey. <laughs> they grew up at the Joey. What are other places in Bellevue that athletes go? We're we're, we're low on places Ruth's in Bellevue. Chris that I know. Steakhouse. <laughs> but the, there was this whole generation of players, and and obviously. That generation has come to an end in Seattle. Like there's, there's no remnant of that generation left anymore. But there was an element with KJ. Wright. Tyler Lockett's like, kind of. He's a half generation. Uh, he's half generation down. Uh, Wright did play last season for the Las Vegas Raiders, but made it clear after that that like it was kind of Seattle or bust. And when the Seahawks weren't interested in a reunion, that's when he decided to make the this retirement announcement. And also, I I don't know if that's about KJ Wright, the football player. I think KJ Wright, the football player, could be playing. Obviously, could be playing in the NFL this year. It's about you think it's possible that KJ Wright, the football player, could be better than Cody Parton. <laughs> it's about the Seahawks where they are as an organization. Yes. This is this is again whether anybody wants to admit it or not. This is a reset of a year for the Seahawks. And KJ, it it wouldn't make sense for them to bring in, I don't know how old KJ is, 35, 36? I think he's probably 34, but also just, you know, he's not necessarily a backup linebacker. Yeah. Like that's not the role he's ever played in his career. Uh, there's, there's a good chance KJ finds his way to the coaching staff in Seattle eventually. It would not be surprising. J.R. Sweezy played his first four seasons for the Seahawks, the last three as a starter before returning for another season as a starter in 2018. Sweezy also played for Tampa Bay and Arizona, did not play in the NFL last year after being waived by the Saints in the preseason. And lastly here in the toast, it congrats to the U9 Newcastle team. Newcastle Miners. Is that it? Yes. Uh, champions of the Summer Knights Tournament this weekend in Federal Way, as we discussed on the podcast last week, uh, that was going to be participating in for a second consecutive week. We did we did go into Federal Way and beat them in their own house <laughs> pretty handily. Not with, uh, not with Baby Fantasy Genius for the final. For the final, no. <laughs> we, we were already in Oregon by that point. A trip to Oregon took precedent over that. It does not feel like we were in Oregon this week. It feels like a whole... Like, that was last week. A weekend happened, which I guess was yesterday, and now it is a new week. It's been barely 24 hours. It's pretty wild. But the weather difference was so dramatic between when we left Seattle and when we were in Oregon, where it was very hot in central, in not quite central Oregon, but Salem. Uh, and then now, when it was 67 degrees and raining today. It also turned fall. Yeah. So it's actually been several months, as it turns out. Uh but it was it was a fun tournament. They beat a team that is uh, one of the most expensive teams to play on for children's baseball. And after the game, I, I like poking Luca and being like, those kids paid whatever, hundreds of dollars to play in this game, and you just beat their ass. <laughs> <laughs> so it, it was a nice follow-up to losing in the championship the previous week. We, we still do not have a search for Seattle's best party this week, but we're moving closer because I ate at Bitterroot Barbecue earlier this evening before going to uh, Rumen's and picking up this week's beer. Uh, do you want to talk at all about the food we ate driving through Portland? Yeah, we should probably tra- talk about the sandwiches at the very least. Okay. I don't even remember what we had on the way down. Well, we went to uh, Lardo on the way down. Oh, okay. L- I mean, Lardo's not like... It's a known quantity at yeah. this point. But uh, on the way back, the place we went was Sandwich, which you demanded. <laughs> yeah. 
correctly demanded. This is Midwest-style braised meats. You make it sound like I did something wrong by demanding this. What you meant to say was thank you. <laughs> dear, dear, dear Al, you're welcome. Full page ad. <laughs> I, I'd seen this. I had a TikTok that was sent to me. Uh, about Sandwich Restaurant. It's right there on the east side of Oregon. On It's on Burnside, right? Portland, the uh, east side of Oregon. It's <laughs> very not, different. Not the east. Do not go to the east side of Oregon. <laughs> it's, it's like one block over from Screen Door. That's that's the notable thing here. Uh, but right right on the east side of Portland, on Burnside, in one of, they sort of have a lot of these sort of like strip mall areas in Portland, especially that east side, where it's just like, boom, everything that you could want is right there. In that little strip mall, it's like you got restaurants. There's a hipster barber shop in there. There's always coffee and beer, and you're just like, what else could I need? <laughs> I could just stay here. I feel like Portland does this better than Seattle does. I mean, definitely the the food you know food truck slash food hall concept is much bigger in Portland than it is here. They they These also aren't that necessarily. Yeah, big. but the, I feel like the blocks and the the. East Portland are like perfectly suited to having very good restaurants and really like crammed in with other good stuff. That's probably true. Uh, so they do like Chicago style meats, like an old school Chicago beef, right? Which, Which we were obviously very excited to eat after the bear. Now, can you explain to us exactly, you explained this to me in the car, but can you expl- explain to me what makes a Chicago beef a Chicago beef? So the, the beef is cooked and then they keep the the juices that are created while the meat is being heated on the in a pan, as we saw on the bear. And then the meat, after it's been thin sliced, is then reintroduced into that juice to kind of absorb it. And then when they're constructing the sandwich, typically the sandwich is either is dunked or you know somehow you're getting that that juice is a a you. And all you to go with the sandwich. Just so the that, best way to make a sandwich. That's what distinguishes it from a cheesesteak or the chopped cheese, which are kind of the cousins to the Italian beef in Similar. other major American northern cities. But you, you want that meat to be like, the juice is the best stuff. Everybody knows, right? Yes. When you're cooking meat, if you have those juices at the bottom, you want to pour that back onto the meat because that's where the good stuff is, right? Uh, and having the combination of those two things, you want it, you want it to be wet, right? You want it to be a little bit dripping. Now, I will say. So I've had the I've had Italian beef in Chicago at two of the major chains, Portillo's, and then Al's Beef. I thought Al's Beef was my my favorite of those two. I've been I'm there sure a couple it was. Of times. Al's Beef. <laughs> the listener doesn't necessarily know why why that's funny. Uh, what what also distinguishes it from like a cheesesteak in particular, and obviously a chopped cheese. Typically, no cheese on the Italian beef, mm-hmm. which is, I, I got to say, I would probably rather have cheese, all things considered. Than it's about cheese. the beef, though. Yeah. It's about the, the beef. beef. is the star. And, and it's about the, the I, I, pers- I hate wet bread, right? This is like a, a personal pet peeve of mine. If there's bread that gets wet, I hate that. I kind of love it. I do not hate. I hate wet bread with water. Oh, uh, well, yeah. I mean, who doesn't hate? Who, who wants that? I love wet bread. Okay. With beef juices. Yeah. Come on. So those two things together. I will say, though, we had the pastrami also. It, you know, what also distinguished this is the Italian beef sandwiches that I had in Chicago at those two particular, uh-huh. you know, kind of touristy chain, chains uh, did not have jardinera on it like this one did, which is also a Chicago thing. I thought it was very good. It was, I was eating in the car, so it was a little bit difficult they, to really consume. And I, I don't know also, if you even know this. What? 
They gave us a, a cup of aju to go with it. Of aju to dunk. Yeah. Yeah, I, I probably, if we were sitting down, I would have done that. Of course. And it would have been a lot better. But I'd also had a two-day-old In-N-Out burger. <laughs> I had right before we left. So, like, my appetite wasn't quite there. No one, when, no one forced you to have the day-old. Day I'm not going to let go of an In-N-Out, In-N-Out burger. burger. Okay. So I had I had the day-old In-N-Out burger. My appetite wasn't quite ready. I tried to delay. I tried to stall as long as I could. But for me personally, I think pastrami is the winner. Oh, pastrami was the clear winner. Pas- Without the, question. The, the pastrami was top-notch. To the sandwich, like... If it one sandwich was even more excellent than your other sandwich, that's a good problem to have. It is. Right? That's I like agree. having Robbie Ray and Luis Castillo. No, don't preview that. And Thanks. Logan Gilbert. But like the the reality is if if you have two sandwiches that are that good, that's a good thing. It was just like to me pastrami is maybe even a superior meat. Yeah. Uh I would in a vacuum probably prefer Italian beef to pastrami, but oh, maybe that's even as I say that, I'm not sure I agree with it. Pastrami, pastrami was the play there. I mean, I want to try more of the menu, I think. Yeah, it was great. That's no, the place I, I I'm going to get back to during the season. It. it seemed like it was a pretty popping spot, too. I mean, I'm, I, one thing I'm curious is how much other people have to have connected. Like, oh, huh, The Bear is a great show. I wonder if there's any Italian beef sandwiches in Portland. Because there doesn't appear to be any in Seattle that I know of. If the listener knows of one, please let us know. There's not one. But wow, I'm not familiar with. Have any. you been to the Market House corned beef place? That's by my old work. I haven't ever been there. Man, just the huge corn. We've talked about this in the podcast. Oh yeah, just the giant sign that says corned beef. <laughs> it's like, a great sign. Yes, <laughs> say no more. <laughs> Where do I sign? Uh, I mean pun, that, that pun, stuff. Pun that, not intended. That stuff is an incredible, but it's not Chicago beef. It's corned beef. But any type of like heavy beef sandwich, I'm pretty oh. in on. <laughs> <laughs> Say what you will about the Big Ten, but I do like Chicago style <laughs> beef. Well, we, we can pick some up if we road trip to watch the Huskies play at Northwestern <laughs> in 2024. <laughs> uh, maybe going to have ourselves on the relocation front. Realignment? Not relocation. Real, real, yeah. yeah, the going to move the school. The school. <laughs> maybe should. Uh, do you want to talk about the crossover this weekend at all? Yeah, of course I want to talk about the crossover. So I was there on Saturday. Chet Holmgren, Paolo Bancaro, top two picks in this year's NBA draft who did not play against each other in See, the Summer League. I, I don't, okay, they didn't play against each other in Summer League. They also didn't play against each other in the crossover. Who makes that the is, teams in the crossover? I, I think um, Jamal Crawford probably. And he's just like, you two play together? Or, did, I, or They wanted to play together. He, he's, he's listening to the players, right? Yeah. I mean, if if it's guys who we're are in the player empowerment movement, <laughs> yeah, when it's guys who are like this big stars, uh, yes, and other than Jaden McDaniels, who is also I didn't for sure know anyone else who was playing in this game, <laughs> like even after watching the game, yeah, it wasn't like going and you weren't sure who was playing. You were like, those are some guys that look like sort of semi-pro basketball players. I mean, the only we also saw the game beforehand that did not involve NBA players. And the only person I for sure recognized in that game was uh, UW Transfer Center front Kepnon. Oh, okay. Mike, Mike Jensen. Mike Jensen was not. I, I Does would, he ever? He must play sometimes, right? Uh, I don't think he plays in the crossover anymore. The, He's back in 2019, they had the kids game, and Mike Jensen's son was played in that game along really? with J.J. Crawford, Can his kid who, who did play in that game on last How old Saturday is J.J. Well. Crawford? I want to say like 11, Is he pretty 12. Good? Yeah. 
Him and Will Conroy Jr. Really? Yeah. I uh, feel like Jamal Crawford Jr. Is that his name? J.J. Crawford? Yeah, he goes by J.J., yeah. Probably more likely to go to UW than Jamal Crawford was. <laughs> well, well, by definition, I mean, Jamal Crawford anyone is more likely to but go like, to UW. Don't you think like, there's like a pretty—if he's good enough— It's a different era of UW basketball. But I don't know. He may have to move to upstate New York. <laughs> <laughs> Let's just say Mike Hopkins is not going to be the coach by the time oh. he's ready. <laughs> we could pretty, there's a good chance maybe Will Conroy will be the coach. It's very possible. Is Will Conroy's kid about the same age? About, yes. Hmm. Uh, so Chad and Paolo clearly wanted, <laughs> wanted to play together. Yes. Paolo has been a fixture at the crossover. Like I've seen him dating back five years. Really? Probably in this okay. four or five years. Did you know him from the very first time you saw him? I, I knew him at that point is Rhonda Smith's uh, son. Okay. At that point. Okay. Before he was the first pick in the NBA draft. Yes. Before he made his name for himself. Uh, so it's not surprising that he would want to play. Chet was interesting. I mean, he did play last summer in the crossover and was very impressive there. Uh, I didn't happen to catch, I think, I don't know if that was during Summer League or what, but I was out of town, didn't catch it. Uh, but it's interesting that he wanted to come back, despite he has no spirit clear ties to Seattle, specifically. Well, Apollo. But yeah, I mean, there's, there's a friendship there and the state of Washington element with being across the state in Spokane. So it's awesome that like he would he would want to come out and do this. And uh, uh, it was basically a full house. There was an ex- a huge line to get in when I first showed up and thankfully got waved through the door because uh, uh, I, I was That media. was your press pass? Yeah. Is there press at all? Or there, is, just... there is some press, yes. But you didn't have a special area to sit? There was supposed to be a special area to sit, but eventually there were enough people that just like fans started coming up there. Yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> so. ESPN's Kevin Pelton doesn't mean that much there. <laughs> no. <laughs> I don't know where it means that much. <laughs> Not there. Uh, and then they had us like at the top of the bleachers, which is also where family and where Chet hung out before he started warming up. Um, so it was a great crowd, uh, as full as I've ever seen it for a crossover game. I've missed a lot of the big showcase stars coming into town because I'm often out of town during the summer. Who, who Blake the Griffin biggest, okay, is Blake. the biggest that I was there for. <clears throat> Kevin Durant is the one I really feel like I missed out on. Okay, Katie's a pretty big star. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> was Blake Griffin here because he's he was teammates with Jamal? Correct. Yeah. And, and Steve Ballmer, by the way, showed up, was in the crowd on Saturday. Jalen Rose, somewhat randomly. He was just there. Showed up. Huh. Yeah. So it was, a, it was an interesting crowd. So Steve Ballmer was in the house this weekend? He was. Wow. Yeah. Move the Clippers, Steve. <laughs> uh, and He's like, I am moving the Clippers. Yes, he is. <laughs> Just not to Seattle. Well, by the time you move to LA, it'll be perfect <laughs> timing. I was trying to pitch you on El Segundo. Uh, Paolo and Chet really kind of both played to their, their types in this. Paolo put up 50 points. Chet filled out the box score, was two blocks away from a triple-double. Like, they kind of both did their How thing. How many points do you think Chet scored? If Paolo scored 50? He scored 34. Okay, so they both were scoring. Oh, I was tracking their stats. They, for anybody or just for yourself? Just for myself. Okay. Yeah. You just have to keep stats everywhere you go, don't you? I mean, I was going to maybe write a news story about this if I had gotten some quotes from both of them after the game. So you were the only one who knew that, that Paolo scored 50? No, I actually am at a 48. The 50 was an official crossover figure. They, <laughs> they did have stats. I didn't need to keep them, as it turned out. It was just handy to do so. And you had the wrong number? 
Apparently so. Huh. Sometimes there's glitches in the computer. <laughs> Sometimes people stood in front of me and I couldn't quite <laughs> see what was happening. That's one of the glitches in the computer. <laughs> it's weird, though, because you don't usually go to games, so it must have been really uncomfortable for you to have watched an <laughs> NBA game. Or uh, NBA players, at the very least. Uh, Jaden scored 52. He was playing for the other team by himself. This he really was matching up a with lot Paolo. Of, a lot of points are scored by here. I mean, it's the prime. you got to you gotta play a discount here. Uh-huh. Uh, but it was it was great fun. And then I, it seemed like even more fun on Sunday when uh, DeJounte Murray came to came back to the crossover and brought his new Atlanta Hawks teammates, Trey Young and John Collins. In yeah, tow. that was kind of wild. So it was just DeJounte was playing because he's from Seattle. And then he was just like, they probably are in L.A. or something. Probably. Like they weren't flying from Atlanta. Uh, very unlikely. So it was the first opportunity to see all the three of those guys playing together. What will be the biggish three for the Hawks this They're season? They're on like a... a more semi-reasonable private jet flight than some other people. <laughs> and Maybe who've been married to Blake Griffin. I gotta say, yes, it, it seemed like even more fun because Trey Young's game is kind of designed for the Pro-Am setting. And he was shooting from deep. Well, there was a lot of playmaking in the highlights that I saw. Setting up to Shantae and then the, the play where both of them passed it to set up a John Collins dunk. Like all three of them were involved in that. Oh, yeah, I saw that play. Yeah. That was actually like, damn. I was like, that was shockingly well executed. And Percy Allen of the Seattle Times talked to him. He, he was there both days and said the crowd was similar, you know, barely a, an open seat in the house for both of those. So maybe the biggest weekend in crossover history, I think, to have those two days back to back. Is the crossover still continuing? It is still continuing. This was week two, so we've got plenty of time left. Is there, for the crossover, is it just random players who show up, or is there any sort of structure? Or like, are there teams? There are teams. So the local players are organized on teams, but it's not that formal. Like, Paolo, I think, ended up playing for a different, I don't know, maybe he was on the team he was listed on. Uh Uh-huh. But... But, you know, it, it's going to be kind of just set up to to accommodate the stars who are coming to town. Luca played with two different teams in a baseball, the same baseball tournament two consecutive weekends. It's a little like that, yes. Yes. So you want to accommodate the stars? Oh, wow. <laughs> wow. Wins one championship. <laughs> and he doesn't even play in it. It's all about those big dicks rings, though. <laughs> Dick sported goods. Dick clear. Uh, is anybody else coming that we know of to crossover? Usually this gets announced week of. Okay. So there, I haven't seen any announcements yet this week. I'm, I don't know if I missed anything. All right. Well, that sounds pretty exciting. I mean, Trey Young randomly out of nowhere. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that was, that was very surprising to see. So with that, I think it's time for your favorite segment. Don't burn yourself. We got Mariners hot takes coming at you. I'll be honest. I was feeling down. Julio's on the aisle. The Mariners did well at the deadline, but they didn't land Soto or another bat at all. The Astros look like uh, are absolute kryptonite. And what's worse, the Strohs are cowards, too. This is even the take. The Strohs are cowards, too. They were too scared this weekend to brawl with JP and Wink. 
Wednesday was the first day in my three weeks as a fan that my blood pressure wasn't normal. And guess what happens? Garrett Cole gives up six runs in the first inning to the Seattle Mariners. And all of a sudden, we have taken two of three from the best team in the AL in their house. Reviews of the captain called it bland and bloated. And the Mariners now sit with a downright terrifying 83.6% chance of making the playoffs. The highest that number has been in over 20 years, I assume. (laughs) They come out of the deadline with one, two, three aces. A rotation that can stack up against anybody in a best of three series and I say bring on the Bronx Bombers again because the next time they play the Mariners are taking all three wow wow <laughs> my three pieces of Mariners uh yeah that has to be the highest number right it would, I would I mean maybe in 2003 somewhere I, I did a thought not. experiment of of all the previous times, I can only I mean, remember it, back to last season. I mean, it would twenty years ago it would have been higher because, as you'll recall, as I've said on as I've tweeted, Moneyball is actually a movie about the two thousand two Mariners collapsing Mariners and collapsed. not making the playoffs. Oh my god! Wow. Year. Moneyball <laughs> two is going to be about I don't even know who's rising. That was the. Uh, we don't know yet. That's the thing. It's the Orioles. <laughs> I think the Orioles gave up. Yes, on this year they, they did threw give in up. the towel. Uh, yeah, you were very down after the trade deadline. You were confirming that I was down. This this whole take was going to be about how the Mariners screwed up the trade deadline, and then Luis Castillo pitched. About how the Astros and the Yankees had gotten so much better, and they were completely unbeatable, and now the Yankees need to worry about whether they can beat the Mariners. go. The Yankees actually are, like, again, this is, I complain to you that the hot takes aren't as fun because I know too much about baseball now. Like, the Yankees are, are, they're sort of reeling. Like, the Astros look like, you, percentage chances of winning the World Series, the Astros is astronomical compared to the Yankees. Pun intended. No comment. You're rolling, you're rolling your eyes. It's not a visual medium. Uh, they are not, when they were on pace to win more games than the Mariners did in 2001, that time is over. Like, the, they have now, I think I, they're 5-5 five and five in their last 10. I agree, that time is over. You were. You, I tried you, to explain when Luca was like, "They're probably going to win 118 games," and I was like, "That's not how baseball works." Well, you, <laughs> I was like, "You, you can't just the look at the record the and then assume." Yeah, I've tried. I tried to explain regression of the mean. I need to do a YouTube video about it. Is what you're telling yes. me? Yes. He won't watch it. Oh no. Yeah. He like cares about the song "Yellow" by Coldplay. This is how big of a Mariners fan you are now. What's that? You've remained a fan even though Julio Rodriguez is not playing in these games after last week's hot take about how Julio was the it's only reason to be a Mariners fan. Uh, and I only watched a total of like four innings of those four games. He was placed on the injured list Sunday after being hit in the hand by a pitch during the final at-bat of Saturday's when the Mariners lone one in a three-game series in Houston. Jared Kilnick called up from AAA to replace him, had a home run as part of that yes, huge 6-1 first inning. I'm like weirdly cheering for Kellenic. I feel like a lot, there are a lot of us out there cheering for Kellenic maybe more than anybody else on the team. More than Julio? Well, like Julio's going to be good. Right. Yeah, I get it. 
I'm, I'm on Jared Kelnick Island with you. Uh, as you alluded to, the Mariners acquired two-time All-Star Luis Castillo Friday from the Reds in exchange for four prospects headlined by shortstop Noel V. Marte and 2021 second-round pick Edwin Arroyo. Uh, we talked a little bit about him with Meg Rowley on last week's trade deadline preview. Castillo is age 29 in his sixth MLB season, first in All-Star in 2019, his breakthrough campaign before a strong shortened 2020 season, then lost a league-high 16 games while starting a league-high 33 last year, now enjoying his best full season by FIP and ERA, earning his second All-Star trip. Castillo is making $7.35 million this season. That is absurd. Well, he's in arbitration. Like, that's the whole point of this. The Mariners traded him because they've got another year where he's arbitration eligible, where they can continue to exploit his services. Next year, though? Isn't the arbitration pool getting higher? I think think it'll be a more favorable situation. He'll make more than $7.35 million, but still not as much as he would on the open mark before reaching free agency in 2024. Team control is such a fucking sham. Like... (laughs) They're like, you can, basically, if you're a pitcher, they're like, you can use all of your value of your career. It would be like if running backs only were able to have rookie deals or whatever, which kind of they are. I mean, I don't think it would be like that. They're not only able to do that. But like pitchers, the, the amount of mileage that is put on a pitcher's arm means that by the time you hit 30, a lot of good pitchers are already out of baseball or whatever, aren't good anymore. And so if you're in arbitration for all of those years, getting a small amount of money, obviously some pitchers are getting paid, but like, yeah, it is. Now that the college players are getting paid, I have to, I have to start fighting for the rights of arbitration. Wow. There you <laughs> go. I mean, start with minor leaguers, then we can move to more sure. arbitration. Uh, ahead of Tuesday's deadline. Wait, we should talk a little bit more about Luis Castillo. So we talked about this with Meg about what this would mean. And yeah. I, I think sort of on the, we have a full ass fucking Mariners section here. So weird. Uh, I think it's all is, because of the one hot take. This is the first time. No, this it's because you care too. That's the thing is that it's well, not I about watched more for the four innings of that game because uh, Luke and I were walking, watching it in the back seat as we were driving back from Salem. You know, as you know more, like we were talking about what was traded for Soto, and you knew everything. Well, that's because I did the research. It's, it's for the podcast. You did the research about what was traded for Juan Soto for the podcast. Oh no, not what was traded. For, well, like I, I, I read about Look, the Juan Soto trade pieces. You love baseball more than anything, and there is. That's true. I'm, I'm giving up on ba- basketball, and but we already have people doing trade grades for baseball. Do we? We do. Who? Jeff Passan. No, Jeff Passan doesn't do that. Who Jeff does the Woj? Uh, a variety of people, including my former uh, basketball prospectus colleague, Bradford Doolittle. At ESPN, though? Yeah. Okay, what was the grade for the Castillo trade? <laughs> it, was a, it was a C for the Mariners and an A for the Reds. Just, this dude's a joke. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, but what, what it meant for the Mariners, this trade, and I, I, I think... I look, maybe it's a C for the Mariners. Sometimes you have to make C trades in the interest of winning now. Like the Mariners need to make the playoffs this year and they need to, as Meg was saying, they have to push some chips in, right? Are the Mariners going to win the world series? Probably not. Can that rotation of those three players stack up against almost anybody in the playoffs? Absolutely. And is Luis Castillo the best pitcher who was traded at the deadline? I assume. <laughs> I don't know that much about Frankie Montas, but I, I think there, he's considered that. Yes, I there think. are underlying stats from Luis Castillo, which I think people people were underrating Luis Castillo as a player, partially because he was playing with the Reds. 
I mean, I don't think anyone, when they're analyzing this trade, is questioning how good Luis Castillo is. It's more about the fact that the Mariners did give up a lot in this trade in terms of, you know, Marte has been a pretty pretty substantial product pro, prospect. And, you know, uh, giving up Arroyo barely a year after drafting him in the second round, as well as two additional prospects of some value. Let me ask you this question. Is Luis Castillo the greatest pitcher that the Mariners have ever traded for? I mean, I would need to break it down. Jeff Facero, when they got him going into the 98 season. Jeff Facero? So they've traded for Jamie Moyer. Well, I, I'm talking about at the time they traded for him. Jamie Moyer was like a 30-year-old journeyman. No one knew he had 20 years of pitching okay. left. So you're saying like Freddie Garcia wouldn't count because he was a no, prospect? No, I'm not counting Freddie Garcia. No. Okay, so in the moment, I Castillo has to be the best player. When you look at advanced statistics. I mean, Jeff Facero, Andy Benez, Eric Bedard at the moment they acquired uh, yeah, him Bedard was pretty was, good. <laughs> also, there was the, He was really good for a solid four innings until he was injured. The lefty Cliff Lee. Oh yeah, they Cliff, had like yeah, that was season. a big one. That was a big one. Actually, yeah. I think I think Cliff Lee is probably Cliff Lee is probably he's like answer. one Cy Youngs. Okay, we yeah. got there. Look at my baseball knowledge. Yeah, I was thinking of a a different dude that they traded for in the like early two thousands. I don't know who you, where you're going with that one. There was another pitcher that they traded for. Back in the 2000s, they didn't do mid-season trades because winning the World Series wasn't part of their business plan. <laughs> they got Al Martin at the trade deadline. Wait, really? I'm pretty sure it was Al Martin was at the trade deadline in 2001. And both of his wives? Uh, <clears throat> one more. I'm going to move past that one. Uh, it's not, not inaccurate, but... Any, anyway, Luis Castillo, I think when you look at the advanced stats, the K-rate, stuff like that. Also, the, well, yeah, Randy Johnson also doesn't qualify by my criteria, but it's interesting that you mentioned Freddie Garcia and Jamie Boyer ahead of him. Randy, oh, well, okay, yes. That they traded for Randy Johnson from the Expos. Okay, I understand. Yes. Yeah, no, this, the, Luis Castillo is definitely not the best pitcher they ever traded for. <laughs> He's like maybe not even the top 10. But they do not have a long history of making impactful trade deadline moves which is one of the things that I think does make this exciting for Mariners fans. Well, and, and I think there was something about sort of like feeding into the excitement that's happening around the Mariners. They needed to do this, right? Like they didn't know that Julio was going to get injured right after. I, mean, but I don't like to say needed to do this, but I think the time was right to do it. There, it is still going to be a very difficult road to the playoffs. Even though they're at an 83.6% chance of making the playoffs today, part of that is because of that win that they had with Castillo starting, Right. You know, again, Castillo didn't make the team score six runs off Garrett Cole in the first inning, but like... You gotta do the voice again. <laughs> the Mariners. <laughs> the Marinese. Uh, I I just... I, I think there was something too, as Meg was saying, they gave up something for Castillo. This offseason, they'll be able to go out, they'll still have Castillo, hopefully sign another bat. And you're talking about... And maybe have the ability to trade one of their starters, you know, maybe a Chris Flexen for someone else, because you've got six starters if you protect George Kirby actually being able to pitch a full slate of major league innings in 23. I mean, look, you take those four starters right there, and I think it's definitely up there with anybody in baseball. I don't know enough about baseball to analyze that, but it's better than it was. Uh, ahead of Tuesday's deadline, the Mariners made a pair of minor deals, adding a handful of depth pieces, picked up catcher Kurt Casale and left-handed pitcher Matt Boyd from the Giants, and utility man Jake Lamb from the Dodgers, 
a northwest field of this, Boyd and Lamb, both Seattle area natives, Boyd went to Eastside Catholic. Hello. Like Home of Matisse Thibel and Mrs. Fantasy Genius. Yeah. And Lamb to Bishop Blanchett before playing at UW. Uh, wow, Lake. really? Just apparently, what school should we send Luca to? <laughs> Kennedy? <laughs> Which Catholic know. school should he go to? Probably Eastside Catholic is closer. Kennedy did produce a number one overall pick, didn't they? Really? I think Floyd Bannister. Floyd Bannister? There. He yeah. went to Kennedy? I believe so. Uh, Casale, nine year in his ninth year in upgrades backup catcher where Luis Torrens has been wildly ineffective this season, putting up in sub-500 ops. Uh, both Casale and Boyd are currently on the injured list, but nearing their return. Boyd has not pitched this season due to injury, but uh, joining Tacoma to continue his rehab uh, saw on the athletic and their piece about this that uh, including photos of him uh, a photo of him from the inaugural series at Safeco what is now T-Mobile Park then Safeco as Field. a kid yeah that's pretty cool he, he also apparently was at the the uh, the double game wait who is this Boyd yeah how old is he he was like four at the time of the 95 ALDS okay so he would not have gone to high school with Mrs. Fantasy Genius <laughs> no. he was at the new location of Eastside Catholic yes okay uh, he's been a career starter. He started 145 of his 149 major league appearances, but the Mariners envisioning him as a long reliever to uh, so- soak up some innings out of the bullpen. Uh, Lamb, who was an all-star in 2017, joining a six team in the last three seasons, has played the infield corners in the outfield. So, uh, you know, we'll, we'll bring some versatility to the Mariners bench. It could eventually be a replacement for Abraham Toro, who has uh, not been very effective this season. And Sad, though. We do we do love Abraham Toro. Has drawn the ire of Mariners fans. They don't seem to love Abraham. I mean, he had that base knock to win the game. That was freaking huge. You were at the crossover. You don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> I was monitoring. All right, I think that's all we've got in this extended Mariners section. Now we're not we're talking about the trade value top 50? I, well, I guess that's true. We didn't we didn't follow up on that. Uh, Julio Rodriguez checked in number four overall Bullshit. on that fan graph. Bullshit, number four. Uh, as we mentioned earlier, Ty France was 46th. George Kirby and Logan Gilbert, both honorable mentions in the top 50. When do you think the Mariners would... Again, they didn't do this when all the way back. When was the last time they would have had a player with this much trade value? I mean, top 10 even. Probably would have been Felix in one of his rookie seasons but even then like pitchers are so risky that i'm not sure you would have gotten him that high exactly that's That's what i'm saying is you look at this trade value top 50 george kirby being an honorable mention is pretty surprising to me and logan gilbert as you know logan gilbert hasn't used too much and kirby's used basically none of this coveted team control right yeah i think it's more the question of again pitcher volatility and have they proven to be quite at that you know gilbert has proved to be at that high level so that that to me was like, even even you would have taken Young Felix. Obviously, Young Felix is better than George Kirby and Logan Gilbert, but he probably would have been in the fifteen to seventeen. Right? I don't know where McClanahan was, but like somewhere around that, or who even who the highest pitcher was. Um, <clears throat> so you're asking when was the last time they had someone in the trade value this high? It would have had to be A Rod. One would think yes. I mean that's it, right? It's it's pretty much in the history of the Mariners players who would have been. In that top 10, it would have been Griffey, A-Rod, Julio, and List. Quite possibly so, yes. Especially in the top five. Like, I I don't think we should... Again, being in a Fangraphs trade value list doesn't win you fucking anything. But understanding that, uh, where that puts him in the history of the organization, or in the history of 
baseball in general. Like, it's still significant what we're viewing with Julio here. Oh, without question. Is anyone questioning that? All right, I've, I've now gone to this piece. So uh, I think people, uh, there's perceived people on the internet who have criticized Julio. <laughs> oh, there was the one person who was unhappy. Who, they weren't even unhappy. They were fearful that other people were going to turn on him. All right, unfortunately, they do not have positions listed here. So I'm going to have to... Uh, Sandy Alcantara is a pitcher. Okay, Alcantara checked in number 10 on the list. Yeah, but he's going to win the Cy Young. And is under contract has what six years of team control is this that's that's basically like that's probably where felix was right yeah he's i mean alcantara is probably even better than felix was when he was young really so i mean i don't know well, you, I you I could look <laughs> baseball reference will probably tell you felix <laughs> hadn't, hadn't read the dave cameron piece yet so maybe he wasn't that, that uh, effective so i i don't know i just looked at that i was a little shocked to see ty france that high also yeah I kind of thought Ty France was somebody who I wasn't sure Fangraphs would be that excited about. Apparently they are. Anyway, we will be in attendance on Friday. It's going to be my first Mariners game since the pandemic. Okay. I don't know when in 2019 I might would have gone. It's It could have been 2018 the last time I was at t We went to Park. a game for Luca's birthday party. Do you think that was your last time there? <sighs> I I don't know. I remember there was also the, the workout in that you had that we went to. Oh, you went to that game? Yeah. Yeah, that was probably... Oh, and actually, no, the last time I was there was 2019. Oh, you said Diamond Club. I, I you did. You got Diamond Club tickets for me also. did at one point, but it was also I also know for sure I was in 2019 because they've celebrated the 40th anniversary of the 79 Sonics Championship, oh, and I covered that game. Wow, you went to a lot media. of games in 2019. Yeah, I was a big Mariners fan back then, <laughs> turns out. Uh I, I, I'm barely a big Angels fan because that, that Mariners game in the 79... Uh, champ celebration was also against the angels one of the previous games show i went to was an angels game also mm -hmm. i think they just play the angels a lot that's true <laughs> this will be the first time that i've been to a Mariners game that marco gonzalez hasn't started in a very long time though wow. it just sort of works out all right let's talk about the sounders who suffered a 2-1 loss friday at lafc despite taking an early lead on an own goal and conceded twice more before halftime, as well as a third goal overturned by VAR for a Carlos Vela handball. Vela had the eventual winner as the Sounders played much more even in the second half, but could never test LAFC keeper Maxime Cropot. No shots on goal among their 11 attempts. They managed to score a goal without a shot on goal, which is pretty impressive. Wait, how did they ways. score that goal? An own goal, as I said earlier. Oh, okay. <clears throat> they returned home Tuesday to take full points against FC Dallas with Nico Ladero scoring the only goal from the spot late in the first half. With that win, the Sounders jumped from ninth in the West into a tie for sixth. They then dropped down to seventh after Wednesday night's results, but still in a playoff spot. They have the same number of points as eighth place Portland in one fewer game, two points ahead of the LA Galaxy who have played, who have one match in hand against the Sounders, and then also ahead of sixth place Nashville in terms of points per match. So uh, odds of looking, making the playoffs looking better at this point. Uh, they can enhance those Saturday with a win at Atlanta United on in a uh, game that will be nationally televised on ABC at 12 noon on Saturday. Uh, Atlanta United still struggling under Sounders legend Gonzalo Pineda, who took over as their head coach last August. They're right. 12th in the East with 1.14 points per match. Uh, former MLS MVP Yosef Martinez playing a lesser level coming back from injury uh, you know, a couple of years ago with five goals, three assists this season for Atlanta United. I told you straight up we were watching that match. 
against granted it's LAFC and like I get it the Sounders aren't supposed to win but times the 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 directions of organizations and sports in Seattle are changing very rapidly I mean look the Sounders are always going to be in the mix they've they've made the playoff again the, the Mariners have not made the playoffs in 20 years the Sounders have made the playoffs every year of their existence <laughs> <laughs> and granted, it's generally been easier to do that in MLS. And it's not that much easier in MLS anymore. I guess there's the same number of teams make the playoffs. Or no, six make it in baseball. There's three wild cards. Seven. Per conference. And seven make it in MLS. Per conference. Yeah. I, I'm just throwing this out there. The wing teams are spending in MLS is different now than it used to be. It's probably not everybody. But all of a sudden, the yeah, Sounders... It's not that. LAFC has always been the only team that has spent a lot of money and spent it really effectively spent money and spent it well yes i i think we are seeing a bit of a changing in the garden mls i don't think we are and, i mean the sounders won Concacaf champions league this year but fuck Concacaf champions league like you really can't take too much from Concacaf champions league because you look at their play and how it has been for the first half of the season and it is not commensurate with the well, best team in all of but also, but also, how many times have we seen the Sounders play like this the first half I, of the I'm season? I'm just telling you. I'm telling you. How many times? This, how many times did the Seahawks do it before they couldn't? Like, this, these sh- things do not last forever. Sure, the Sounders didn't trade Russell Wilson. They still didn't do it years under Russell Wilson. You know, there was a 9-7 and seven season that they missed the playoffs. Okay. Brian Schottenheimer remembers. Um, <laughs> or Gus Bradley remembers. No, Daryl Bevel, that's who That's who the coordinator was. He got fired after that year, right? Yeah, Brian Schott never got fired after winning a playoff game, you'll God. recall. Anyway, Daryl Bevel remembers. They went nine. They didn't do their magical put-it-together, right? There's a loss to the Cardinals in December, and that's the period that the Sounders might be entering into here. They might be enter, entering into their... Maybe they, they stumble into the playoffs. I mean, the other good news that they have here is Rel Rui Diaz, who has played the Portland, had played the Portland match, was his only appearance in like a month and a half here, returned in a reserve role okay. on Tuesday. Maybe it's all about Rui Diaz. I'm, I'm I don't think saying. it's all about Rui Diaz. I think the first half of the season, they were much more focused on CONCACAF Champions League than they were on the MLS regular season. Who were they, focused, so. who were they focused on on Saturday? When LAFC dominated them in every single well, they played on the Friday. LAFC is the best team in the league. Okay, like you, you can't say, "Oh, the Sounders aren't as good as LAFC on the road, therefore they're no good." They, they used to they be also as good as the best teams in the league. They weren't as good as LAFC in 2019. You know what happened? They got lucky. They beat LAFC on the road in a one-game playoff, which is how MLS, soccer playoffs work. And then they won MLS Cup. I I. I would really caution being too excited. I don't think they're going to win the MLS Cup. That's not my expectation here. I think the Sounders are going to be fine. All right. In Schmetz, we trust. All right. I, there might come a time. How about this? Eventually, there's going to come a time. You can't make the playoffs every year. Like, not win forever can't playoffs, literally be true. The Sounders true. might need to approach the roster slightly differently. I, Can you spend however much you want now in soccer? Sure. I mean, the, the, well, you're limited because of the fact that you're spending... An unlimited amount has to be on the three designated players, and there are some limits on the third designated player. Are, are there? Is this a thing that's going to go away? Because like, you can't really want to run a competitive league and say you can only have three pay- players that you can pay. I'm sorry. Like, uh, if MLS wants to be, I understand. How long of a timeline are we talking about? Is the MLS years? business model no longer possibly a pyramid scheme <laughs> with expansion teams? I. How many teams are there now? 
I think they're 30 now. They're going to have to have promotion and relegation at some point. If you get to 40 teams, you can't... You, yes, I, be I'm league. aware that you can't continue expanding infinitely. And I don't, I don't think that MLS actually plans to. They're done. Expanding? Yes. I, they're not done, but I think they're nearing, nearing doneness. What is the number? I think 32 would probably be... Is there a team in Charleston yet? There's not a team in Charleston yet. Right, still, the they're, they're at 28 for the record. Okay. Also, the crossover is off this weekend. For also for the record, so don't, don't go in, to SPL. put a team in Charleston, then you're good. <laughs> Since you can travel there alone. Yeah. For a Sounders match, I don't think so. You're not traveling to see, there to for see the, the Sounders lose to Charleston. You're not traveling there for the Sounders match. It's just something to do between your meals. <laughs> <laughs> I think after how how hot the chicken is, <laughs> there's a lot of hot chicken in, in Charleston, right? Hot chicken in Charleston, or just Nashville? They're just good food in Charleston. This is not a visual medium, so you can't see the look I'm giving Tristan right now. I thought I was also getting hot chicken in Charleston. No, too. that's not. What am I getting? Fine dining. I mean, Charleston just randomly happens to have incredible barbecue, as we've talked about on this pod. I like that Lewis Barbecue, an offshoot of Frank Lewis. Trained under Franklin of Frank, Aaron Franklin of Franklin Barbecue okay. before starting his own spot in Charleston. Is that place easier to get than Franklin? I rolled up and there was like a line of two people. Really? I, I went right when they opened because I was driving to Charlotte for the All Star All Star weekend. Uh, the I can't remember the name of the other barbecue spot off the top of my head, but there's also Whole Hog Barbecue. Okay, that's very highly regarded. Uh, right near Lewis Barbecue, uh, there's you know the Low Country traditional cuisine. Grits is a shrimp and grits is a big thing in Charleston. I had that as well. So you got plenty of options. Can't wait to find but out. Not hot chicken. I, I thought there was hot chicken in, in Charleston also. I mean, there may be hot chicken. There's hot chicken here. I'm just not ruling out hot chicken. That's not their special. You know what? I was in Nashville. I didn't talk to you about this. I was like, we're going to make the pil- pilgrimage, right? We're finally going to have hot chicken. And it was just like the timing, like me- I scheduled a meeting. I had a Friday night open. And I was like, that's when we drive out to, uh, what's the place? I've been there, so I should remember. It's like 20 minutes out of town now. Um, I don't know if it's that far, but yes. Hold on. It's probably 20 minutes from downtown. I have to look up the spot. I can't, can't remember names off the top of my head anymore. Princes, princes. Okay, is the spot. We're gonna we're gonna make the trip, right? Reese said I read his his uh, whole like Nashville diatribe, right? Places to go. He was like, if you're gonna do it, make make the trek, right? Yeah. And so we were gonna do that, and then I ended up scheduling a meeting on like the one free meal time that I had, so. Well, but I've always been scared. I don't know. I, I've told you this. Not scared of the hot chicken. I'm fine eating the hot chicken. I'm scared of still operating in a business capacity right. having eaten hot chicken. Understandable fear. And and I'm scared of myself also. That you're going to order too hot? There, there's a darkness that lingers underneath, as with all of us. And I I know that I'm I'm not going to allow myself to have like... What what is it on a on a one to ten scale? I don't know. or a hot scale. I know that I'm gonna get hot. You know what I mean? I'm gonna get something that is too hot. 
and then I'm going to force myself to eat it, and I'm going to say that it wasn't that hot. Even though I'm dying on the inside, I know all these things are going to happen, and then I won't be able to. So I need to go to Nashville for alone. no business whatsoever. Now, I don't need to be alone. I'm fine being with other people in Nashville. Uh, <laughs> it's only Charleston. You got to be alone. It's true. But like, I, I need to be there and not have any sort of response. It's always where I'm like, I would love to go to Austin without South by Southwest there. Yeah. Because, but I've never, we did it that one time. We but we were I got, there like I got a really day. sick. And yes, you got sick. So, uh, but you understand what I'm saying? Like, sometimes going places for business or whatever. No, I, I totally know. Is not as good as just being there. Fortunately, my business is not that not, not that challenging. Will Rain fell down two nothing at Angel City FC Saturday in the first twenty nine minutes before rallying to score the final three goals all after halftime and get the win. Just Fishlock halved the deficit, and Sofia Huerta got the rain level with a Galazzo for her first goal outside of the season before late sub Tobin Heath opened her rain account with the game winner nutmegging goalkeeper Didi Haracic in the eighty ninth minute. For the rain's first road win of 2022. I really forgot how great Reese's Nashville write-up was. We gotta post it on Tuesday. <laughs> so good. The rain scored in the second minute to take the lead with Jess Fishlock finishing off a Megan Rapino corner. There's an edit that takes out all the personal stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Louisville got the actually equalizer. the edit still kind of keeps in the personal stuff. <laughs> well, Louisville got the equalizer just before halftime. Neither team scored after the break, despite 25 shots for the Rain in the game, 11 of them on goal. Uh, Rain will be back home to host Houston, with whom they are currently tied for third in the NWSL standings. Uh, Houston has a match in hand, so that's a big one. If the Rain get full points, they'd uh, kind of negate that advantage for the Dash. I forwarded that to you again. Okay. Maybe take out the part about his vendetta against the owner of one of the bars. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I went there and it was actually pretty good to the part that he has the vendetta against the owner. Wow. <laughs> it, it was really very packed, but it was, a, it was a pretty good spot. It really makes you think. Uh, Seattle Storm, busy week. Uh, struggled to score last Thursday in a loss to the Sun and Suburbs' final scheduled trip to Connecticut. Bird made four threes and scored 14 points, which was her first time in double figures in the month of July, which she later did a second time. Storm then went down to D.C. for a critical back-to-back against the Mystics. Up two going to the fourth on Saturday on ABC. The Storm opened up a 15-point lead with 6.28 left thanks to strong bench play, and then nearly squandered it. After an inadvertent whistle that forced the Storm to inbound, a turnover gave Washington the ball down just one in the closing seconds, but the Storm made a pair of stops to ice the win and secure the head-to-head tiebreaker with the Mystics. Washington did return the favor on Sunday, holding on as both Brianna Stewart and Gabby Williams Ah. missed three-point attempts in the closing seconds that could have tied the score. The sum of those results is the Storm need to match or beat Washington over the final five games to earn home court in the opening round, which probably means going at least 4-1. and one. The Mystics beat the Las Vegas Aces on Tuesday. They do visit Chicago on Friday. The league-leading Sky will be without Atlanta Deladon for that game, but then cruise to the finish line with a home game versus the struggling Sparks and a home-and-home with the last place, Indiana Fever, who have lost 18 consecutive games. Ooh. Maybe 19 now? I don't know if that was before who or after. Who the lost? Like, who do they not have? Yeah. Well, they didn't really have that many good players to, they to just lose have, in the first Every place. other team has, like, a generational player. I mean, they, Melissa Smith, the number two pick of this year's draft, looks like a, a, a promising player for them in a way they haven't had in a while. But uh, 
Storm keep getting player veterans who come from Indiana and talking about how great it is to be like with a first class organization like uh-huh. the Storm. It's very amusing. Uh, UW isn't good enough for the Big Ten. Uh, the Storm. <laughs> I don't know if we can blame the Big Ten for the fever. Yeah, Bobby Knight was right. Mm-hmm. I don't. I don't know if these are all the same. Uh, Storm then got an impressive win over Minnesota on Wednesday in front of their largest crowd of the season thus far. They were <laughs> I really. The, my days of the week are so off. I was like, yeah, that was a Sunday. Nope, nope. <laughs> they will face the Lynx in Minnesota again next week, but also play home and away with the Aces and visit Chicago, the league's two best teams. So a challenging schedule Who's to on Chicago the season. Uh, well, Courtney Vandersloot. Okay. Of course, Candace Parker. Emma Mieseman. And who? Emma Mieseman, who's an, an all-star, was finals MVP in 2019. Last year's finals MVP, Kalia Copper. But you said Elena Deladon is on. The Mystics. Wash. Oh, okay. She's not playing for them against Chicago as part of her rest. That makes sense. Days. I was like, wait, that didn't that didn't check she out. She did previously. Her first original WNBA team was Chicago. Okay. Has not been there for many years. Uh, so this Sunday, we are looking at the largest crowd in franchise history with Climate Pledge Arena completely sold out with Bird to be honored at Sunday's game against the Aces. It's very possible this could be not just her last regular season game in Seattle, but her last game in Seattle, period. Wow. Because of the abysmal WNBA playoff format this year. Oh, man. So after ditching the one-and-done play-ins, basically, for teams five through eight before the semifinals, the WNBA went back to best-of-three series in the first round this year. But they decided to structure it so that the higher seed hosts the first two games, and then if the road team wins one of those two... The deciding game is played at the lower seed, game three. So if the Storm finish in fifth, how do th- <laughs> who are the Ed Wizards behind this one? It really is. It kind of gives the benefit to the road team in a certain way. I mean, so obviously the reason you do this is because it means less travel than the 1-1-1 format. But the way that they did it in the early years of the league is that they did the same thing, except the road team, host, lower seed hosted the first game, and then the higher seed hosted the last two. And they didn't like that because it meant that you could be playing an elimination game in game two without having hosted a game previously, mm-hmm. is what they didn't like about it. But it was still a million times better than this because the scenario was either you get knocked out in a sweep is the lower seed. And you're like, we never, we made the playoffs, but we didn't even get to host a game. Especially, by the way, if the Mystics play two games at their arena, which has a capacity of like 3,500 to 4,000, and they give up the fact that they would have a sold-out Climate Pledge Arena of 17,500, like that's going to be a really bad look for the league. Or the other scenario is the road team wins, lower seed wins one of the first two games, and then the higher seed has played all year for home court but has to play the deciding game on the road? It makes no sense. And I, let me tell you, there was one person, there was one voice out in the wilderness saying this was a terrible idea last year when everybody was so happy to get rid of the one-and-done format. And that person was me. Wow. But you could still get rid of the one-and-done format. That's not the issue. It's just they were moved to a worse format. I agree. It's not the one-and-done format I that's mean, the I, problem. I, it's the new format that's I think the, the issues with the... I, liked, I kind of liked the one-and-done format because it really put a lot of priority on winning in the regular season which I think is valuable. But I also foresaw that this this format of the first round would go away soon. And I, I'm sticking by that prediction and doubling down on it even. Okay, I wanted to ask about baseball because they have a similar format. 
is baseball doing of the three games in the wild card round? Why, why would you ask me this question? Do you, do you know that you don't know the answer to this question of where they're doing those games? I was looking through a thing, but it only explained how the seating would work, and I didn't see whether. Where, where did they play the, the uh, neutral site World Series? That was in Texas? Yeah, that was in Texas. <laughs> they're, they're playing in there. Yeah. <laughs> where, wherever you don't need to wear a mask. Oh, no. They played it in Texas in October 2020, where COVID was done. Uh, I remember talking with some people from Texas this spring at the uh, Sloan Conference, and they were like, the saying down there is like, yeah, COVID, what a wild six weeks that was. <laughs> it's as bad as COVID is on the bear. Um, hmm. You're looking at the exact same thing that I was looking oh, at. I and... assume that they're doing a 1-2-3, though, or 1-1-1 one, one, one format. I don't know. I don't know if I would assume that necessarily, but I don't think that they're doing it two for the home team, higher seed, one for the lower seed. I'm confident of that. Wait, what do you mean by that? I'm, I'm confident they're not doing it the WNBA format. The WNBA format, the the team who's better only gets one game? No, the higher seed gets the first two games. Yeah. And then the lower seed gets game three. Yeah. If necessary. So they're doing it the same amount of games, though. Yeah, it's just... you. Like, why would you want to play the deciding game of the series at the lower seed? Yeah, it's dumb. It gives, like, an unfair advantage to the lower seed because winning one of those first two games doesn't seem that hard. I mean, the Storm basically were in that situation against Washington last weekend and did win one of the two games. So that's the encouraging thing. But you definitely have the scenario where Sue Bird's career could end without another home game in the playoffs. Whew. So, but again, they can forestall that by continuing to, by winning out during the regular season. It's against this difficult schedule. Hosted by the team with the better record. So I think. Are all three there? I'm guessing. I think it, you get all three. That seems reasonable. But that that's fine. At, at the very least, it's like, I mean, I think they should do it as one and one and one. These it three games will all be played in a three-game series hosted by the team with the better record. At the at the very least, you get because there's a division winner that's oh, hosting right. games, so you should get some value for that. I definitely wouldn't structure. However, the WNBA structured it. Yes. Uh, UW football. Time to get them back on the run down because Pac-12 Media Day was last Friday, where the Huskies were represented by players Jackson Kirkland and Alex Cook, in addition to Kaylin DeBoer. Really not a ton of news on the field generated, given the focus on conference realignment, not relocation. Uh, UW looking good in terms of health heading into the start of fall camp with linebacker Edifuan Iulafoscio, the only injury of note on the roster right now. Officially practice starts Sunday, but apparently they have something called like a preseason camp that's going on the Thursday was the first day of, which seems a lot like fall camp. But uh, uh, there you go. Uh, is they started practice that whatever that fall camp is, Michael Penix Jr. ran with the number one offense at quarterback. Dylan Morris ran with the number two offense. Sam Heward with the number three offense. But uh, DeBoer said afterwards that they will mix those players through all of those spots throughout the first two weeks of camp before they play a simulated game. I think I, I think it's Michael Penix's job to lose. It, it does seem that way. I mean, when you look at the factors of he's the most experienced quarterback in general— and he's also the only quarterback that Keelan DeBoer has worked with before. Yep. Like, and has, has played well. Like, I think this makes sense. The only concern that you would have about it is that he's one year as quarterback and then moved on. But right. like, you know what? Fuck it. Like, the reality is you just need to be good right now in college football. Because there's always going to be another transfer quarterback. Out exactly. 
or or you know like look if Dylan Morris doesn't win the job I, who knows if he transfers or whatever but like they can develop somebody else later this is not about will we give up a year and develop Sam Heward and next year will be good it's about winning right the second that's kind of the climate that we're in in college football especially understanding how transfers are looking and looking like they're going to work there's not a you can't take a year off in college football anymore to develop players agreed so all right let's wrap up with the seahawks who after we recorded last week's podcast wrap up oh no you're right continue with the seahawks uh who last week after we recorded this podcast agreed to terms with dk metcalf on a three-year 72 million dollar extension with a record 30 million dollar signing bonus uh, highest for a wide receiver. Then Debo, Debo Samuel signed an extension for nearly identical value shortly thereafter, albeit with a lot less in bonuses. He's got a $24 million signing bonus and a $9 million option bonus for 2023 as compared to $12 million for DK. Trend towards shorter int- extensions for these wide receivers is interesting. Usually, you know, it's been about let's get the longest deal possible, but you know, it, I think it makes sense. Metcalf will be 27 when he enters possible extension window ahead of the 2025 season, 28 when he reaches free agency thereafter. Got a chance to get another monster deal, especially if the wide receiver market continues to escalate like it has lately. It is interesting how that that's the case because you look at something like baseball, not to come back to baseball again, but yeah. like the trend is always, references baseball always for long deals. Yeah, I mean, what, what was the length of the Soto extension? 14 years? He didn't sign an extension, did he? Well, the the offer that the Nationals made yeah. that he declined. That seemed right. 12 or 14 years or whatever. But, like, the trend is always just, like, you're locked up forever. Maybe the, maybe that's an issue with football just not having guaranteed contracts. But, like, no team would offer DK Metcalf a guaranteed contract for 10 years or whatever, understanding how football works. It would have to be a very low price point to do something like that. I'm not even sure if you're allowed to. I think there may be contract length limits to guarantee the money or like overall just period yeah so i mean it's good for everybody kind of it's definitely worse for dk metcalf than it is for the seahawks the reality is the short contract yeah no i think it's better i mean it's riskier but also like i think there is an element where i I think part of the reason there's this trend is look if you're making he's you know got 58 million guaranteed for injury at the time in the signing this deal i don't think he's going to be cut for lack of production if you're guaranteed $58 million, like the extra year of security probably doesn't matter that much. You're probably okay gambling a little bit with the upside of signing an even bigger deal in 2025 or 26. I, I would be, if I was DK Metcalf personally, I would be pretty nervous about this deal for a couple of reasons, partially just because of the the risk of injury that exists in football for every single player at every single position, Right. And and the like constant risk of drop off also, but he's going into this not knowing who his quarterback is, and that is a big thing in determining how good a wide receiver is. Wide receivers are largely determined by scheme and quarterbacks. There's the individual talent on its own, but like DK Metcalf just signed an extension to play with, as far as he knows, Drew Locke and Geno Smith. He played an extension to play, signed an extension to play with quarterback the Seahawks draft in 2023. That is, based based on the reports early in training camp, at least. It's putting a lot of faith in the organization to A, recognize that that's a thing that they need to do, and B, have that be a thing that they want to do. Well, eventually they play these things called games where they keep scores at the end of it. I I think it's going to become pretty clear. (sighs) You have a lot more faith in Pete Carroll than I do. 
I suppose. I, I really think Pete Carroll is trying to figure out a way to win just enough games with as bad of a quarterback as possible. His whole philosophy is basically that the quarterback doesn't matter. I, I wouldn't go that far. I mean, look, if you thought that the quarterback doesn't matter, you wouldn't have signed Russell Wilson to what was at the time the largest quarterback contract in history. His, his philosophy is about de-emphasizing the quarterback position vis-a-vis yeah, -vis other teams. You Maybe you wouldn't have signed that contract, but you also wouldn't have traded Russell Wilson. I wouldn't have, but I... Not you, but I'm saying if, you, if, you, if you're Pete Carroll and your philosophy was that quarterbacks are the most important position, no other team... I didn't his philosophy was that they're the most important position. The, but you said that he paid Russell Wilson, therefore clearly understands the value of quarterbacks. No, I said he isn't like about minimizing the importance of the quarterback position. I mean... I, uh, Russell Wilson, we've gone time, over this. Spent some time revisiting win best forever. Best quarterback who's ever been traded at this point in their entire career. Yes. Spent some time revisiting win forever earlier this week. And one of the things that Pete Carroll talks about is making it think life as simple for the quarterback as possible is something that he took from Bill Walsh. And I think that's what he views his philosophy as. Now, he's wrong that running the ball a lot is the way to make the game as simple as possible for the quarterback. Actually, throwing the ball in early downs is the easiest way to make the game simple for your quarterback. And having good players but, around them. Having a good offensive line is a really good way to make things simple for your quarterback. I mean, I don't Pete Carroll don't doesn't view it in that perspective. A good offensive line. Clearly, they don't. They didn't. I mean, DK Metcalf and Tyler Lockett were players that were pretty good to put around Russell Wilson. You understand what I'm saying, though. If you actually cared about making things simple for the quarterback, you know what you would do? You would give them time to throw the ball. And Pete Carroll didn't do that for Russell Wilson's entire career. Like, maybe he's viewing that the way that Bill Walsh would, but I again I don't know these 49ers offensive lines that Bill Walsh was working with. I think they're pretty fucking good. Well, they also didn't have a salary cap. They met a lot of good stuff in those days. Yes. But like that he's he is viewing it in a totally wrong way. Saying a good running game is how you make things easy for a quarterback is not the right way to make things easy for a quarterback. Have, That's uh, what having, I started saying this is. What? That's what I started this by saying. You were saying that this is what Pete... I said Pete Carroll is wanting to de-emphasize the quarterback position. You said he wants to make it as easy as possible. I'm saying he has done nothing to make that position as easy as possible for but, Russell Wilson. But that whether he actually did things to make it as easy as possible for Russell Wilson does That's not relate to whether they was are doing. going to eventually invest in another quarterback. Which I think they will. Who? They're going to try and draft someone this year or trade for someone. <sighs> You don't get extra first-round picks in 2023 to not have the potential to address quarterback. They didn't do it this year. I mean, they, they did have the extra pick, but it was, a, it was a different situation. They weren't starting with their own pick. The point is they're going to have their own pick that's going to be very good, and they're going to have an extra pick next year, and that's what's going to make this you different. You have so much more faith in this organization than I do. Honestly, I still think the DK extension was bad. Maybe the money wasn't bad, but I think on principle, extending a player like DK, given the entire roster, is the wrong decision. I think the entire roster can change pretty quickly in football. It can get worse. It can. It can also get better. Oh, okay. It just hasn't gotten better for like a decade straight. Now, the thing I would quibble with about the DK extension is the Seahawks' obsession with, well, we can't possibly guarantee 
additional years beyond the first year of an extension. Oh, I'm having a, my I'm having vapors thinking about it. Uh-huh. So therefore, we have to give him this giant bonus and option bonus. So if the situation comes where DK Metcalf requests a trade next year, they are royally fucked. So by by treating it as a bonus, but not guaranteed money. If it's guaranteed money, they could trade him. Guaranteed salary doesn't count to the team that traded it. Your bucks. Why is not everybody doing that? Well, I mean, they want. Oftentimes with players that are not good, you would like to have that money non-guaranteed. But, but so to protect themselves them. from release? To pr- that, that's all they're doing here is protecting them if they want to release DK Metcalf. Correct. Why the fuck would you release DK Metcalf over but the next three years? It's not about DK Metcalf. It's about the principle that we can't possibly this... offer guaranteed money to anyone in an extension beyond the first year, except Russell Wilson. But This is the person who you have faith in approaching this correctly. I'm just saying, I think that the, I think that it's going to be pretty evident to everyone that they're going to need an upgrade on the quarterback position. Like anyone who has eyes who is going to watch the season. I think it's going to be really clear to anyone that after this terrible season, DK Metcalf is going to have 560 yards receiving this year and two touchdowns. Right. And guess who's going to request a trade after that we'll, season? We'll take the over on that. Will you? Yeah. I was reading a tweet and they're like, they finally hit DK Metcalf. And it was just like, yeah. And he it's, had to make an amazing play against the Seahawks rookie cornerbacks. Like it's not been correct. It's good, but I think he's going to have more you, than five hundred and sixty. He did play mini games with Geno Smith last season. The, it's going to be bleak, and you know it's going to be bleak. I, I'm agreeing it's going to be bleak. I'm going to. I'm agreeing it's being so bleak that they're going to. The chances of Metcalf requesting a trade before this this extension is over are a hundred percent. I don't know if I would say a hundred percent. People request trades even when they have good deals. But it's okay if he requests a trade at the last year of this contract. It's just if he's... I mean, it's short. It's not that big of a deal. It's short. But, like, I just don't get what the difference is. Sam Cook, a change is going to come in the NFL. Things are trending in a different direction. And guaranteed money is the direction that things are going to trend towards. I mean, they are, but, like... It's not like this is a bad deal for DK because of that. Because, no, again, the money the is team. guaranteed for signing, and he gets the enormous signing bonus. I'm just saying I don't think that structure is as favorable to the Seahawks as they think it is. I just don't see why they wouldn't. What does it save them by structuring it that way instead of just guaranteeing each Again, it's the years. principle that, therefore, when, you know, Quandre Diggs wants to sign an extension. You say sign. no. It's about leverage. DK Metcalf has a lot more leverage than Quandary Diggs has. So DK Metcalf averaged, let's see here, about more than a little more than 65 yards a game uh, in the games that Geno Smith started last year, the three games that he started. Who were the secondaries? One of those was a Jaguars game. One of those was the Jaguars game. It was also his lowest receiving total. Uh, it did help that he had, what, the 74-yard touchdown against the Saints or whatever it was. But oh, and that was a total garbage touchdown, right? If you extrapolate that out per 17 games, his pro football reference helpfully does right here on the page. That pro, that extrapolates out to, uh, projects out to 1,116 yards. I'm betting, do you want to bet on this? Over under 1,000 yards? 1,000 is a lot because injuries. Oh, you told me that. Okay, how about this? DK has to play. I said because of injuries. If DK plays less than 12 games, the bet is null and void. What if we just do yards per game? That equal to 1,000? Sure. All right. Yeah. I'm taking the over or the under on that. All right. There we wow. go. Don't cast bet. Love to see it. 
I was not expecting the DK Metcalf section to be so contentious. It's not contentious. It's just the reality is he's playing with fucking Geno Smith. Like, like this idea that, look, there's only one running back that matters, and it is Rashad Penny. But <laughs> that one running back that matters, and it is Rashad Penny, matters in the context of Russell Wilson being his quarterback. We have never once seen Rashad Penny run the ball without Russell Wilson as his quarterback, and we do not want to see that. I mean, he had at least one carry in that Jacksonville game before he was injured, so I'm, I'm confident that is untrue. You understand what I'm saying? Though. I do understand. what He did not have his breakout performance without Russell Wilson as a quarterback. I, I, I would be... I would be very nervous about that. Wait, the Hall of Fame game was today earlier, right? I, it was, I paid yes. no attention. Did you see? It? You didn't see any of it, did you? I just saw the tweets about it since I was I was out and somehow out at places in Ballard that did not have televisions. Uh, That's fine. You missed the Hall of Fame game. Who cares? Exactly. Jamal Adams suffered a middle finger fracture on his left hand during the opening day of practice. Did return to practice uh, this Tuesday with a specially designed cast on the finger. Seahawks have their mock game coming up Saturday at Lumen Field. Oh, the index or pinky or the thumb. It's the one you put up. <laughs> That's a different Seahawks safety. <laughs> different Seahawks safety. Uh, and then next week when we record this podcast, we will be talking about the Seahawks leaning into a preseason game because it's time Time has passed. We're it's here now. It's time, baby. And you know what else we're here for? Hello. This is what this entire podcast has been pointing towards. We didn't have a waterfall in preview, but obviously we have to preview the return of unlimited hydroplane washing. The return of unlimited hydroplane racing to Lake Washington. I like that you call it. So children's baseball, they usually do the age and then the U after. But I like that you say the U beforehand as if they're hydroplane races. (laughs) I don't know if that's necessary. The U die. I think it's actually like soccer does it. U first is why i think of it that way and and like fiba basketball does it that way as well uh for the first time since 2019 with perhaps the smallest field in (laughs) seafaring history there we go uh just six boats traveled to the tri-cities for last weekend's water follies with two of them the u3 griggs ace hardware and the u40 beacon plumbing pulling out due to damage sustained on saturday (sighs) which one of those is dave illock beacon plumbing beacon plumbing okay Beacon Plumbing, which had a pretty spectacular flip on Saturday in the second heat of racing, expected back this weekend. There we they're, go. they're in the pits right now as we speak. But uh, they probably literally are there at 11.30 p.m., right? Uh, no, I think they're probably gone for the night. Right okay. Now. U3 will not race, leaving five entries, three fewer than the eight we had in 2018 and 2019 when Seafair was last contested. There's just five boats total? Total. How do they even do heats then? Well, both in the Tri-Cities and the previous heat race in Madison, Indiana, the Unlimiteds have run a modified heat format with four of five or three of four of the available boats in each heat race before they all participate in the final. In Seattle, the plan is for match racing head-to-head on Saturday, which they used, uh, I believe, at times in Guntersville in the first race of the season, with a separate championship awarded for that on Saturday before two heats in the final on Sunday. Are you prepared to never see another hydroplane race ever again in your entire life? So I'm going to miss the final on Sunday. Look, Q93 is gone. Like, oh, no. you understand what's happening here. Look, there's a great center fielder in, in Seattle. All of a sudden, we heard Eric Powers on the radio. Just things might look a little different. And uh, that maybe is what's happening here with unlimited hydroplane racing. But we're talking about five boats 
and head-to-head racing. That is not that is the Mark Tate ain't walking through that door. Well, neither is Andrew Tate. But we'll talk about that in a second. I so I'm missing Sunday, Seafair Sunday. For You're the first not gonna time, be there. This is the first time I will not be there in person since there was one year where I decided to just watch it at home because I was like annoyed with Seafair, uh, which was like 2004. Like we went to Waterfalls, but then watched the Seafair at home. Uh, I, and so I'm missing it for the Subaru's final game. And part of the logic is like Subaru only has one final game. There will be other seafarers. But there <laughs> might not be other seafarers is yeah. the thing. There hasn't been one in two years. And who knows going forward. Yeah, seafarers got a lot longer history than Subaru, actually. <laughs> it really does. The one thing in Seattle sports with a longer than the Mariners playoff drought. Also drought. longer than Subaru's entire year, career. What year was Subaru's rookie season? 2002. 2000, oh, okay. The Mariners have literally, wow. What if, so if Subaru's career ends before the Mariners' regular season ends? The Mariners could literally go Subert's entire career without making the playoffs, but also is Subert the jinx for the Mariners? Oh my Did god. Did you just discover that? Wow. <laughs> I mean, sure, it could have been the crippling decades of bad management, but on the other hand, yeah, it l- could be this. Th- there's there's a reality here that the team was on pace to make the playoffs and then Subert was drafted. I mean, th- the, they drafted Super long before they were they were still on pace to make the playoffs well understand. into a rookie season. They won the most games of any team ever. That's true. And then Subert was drafted. Wow. And they didn't make the playoffs the entire time Subert played in Seattle. That's true. Is she a Yankee fan? I'm sure she is. I think she grew up a Yankee fan. Although I don't know. Long Island is more Mets country, isn't it? Or whatever. I don't know. And then we'll retire, and literally a couple months later, maybe even a month later, the Mariners could make the playoffs for the first time in that time period. Yes. Wow. It's eerie, at the very least. Did not expect to discover that during the Seafair preview. So, some of the missing butts this weekend. Oh, yeah, we need to highlight those. The defending (laughs) Seafair champion, Graham Trucking. A top contender in past years. There's not going to be a Graham Trucking? With Andrew Chaitis Driver, isn't racing this season. Why? Uh, unclear. They lost. I guess they lost one thing they mentioned in the Tri City Herald last week, which is why I'm getting a lot of my unlimited <laughs> oh, plane r- updates. It's one does. There's never glitches in that computer, baby. <laughs> oh. um, Seattle <laughs> Times, an old-fashioned printer. Seattle Times. <laughs> Seattle Times had the wrong time for the Blue Angels' performances. I don't know if I should send a note on that or not. Uh, Who would you send the note to? The writer. The Blethen families. <laughs> <laughs> Got a direct line to that. Might some send some different notes to the Plethen family. Uh, they they do lost. They, do they support Culp in the race? <laughs> no. For I think Tri Cities. Uh, You're talking the Tri City Herald. They don't publish the Tri City Herald. No, 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 no. I'm saying did they support Culp. I don't know if they actually give recommendations for the eastern half <laughs> I of the don't state. Think they do, bud. Uh, uh, they lost some crew members to uh, a different team. That was part of the reason they're not racing. Apparently. Uh, neither Who is was that Graham trucking. They lost some crew members and they were just like, we're done. I, I don't know what to tell you. Wow. That's the explanation I heard. Uh, neither is the U 21 is owner. Grego Farrell recovers from kidney transplant and heart surgery, open heart surgery. So 
Hope he uh, continues his recovery. Which boat was that? That's the U twenty one. Yeah, we don't. Rand a the, lot of us don't know the boats. Just Rand by is their, the Miss Rock the last time. Brian Perkins. Brian Perkins is the, is the driver. driver. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Strong Racing started the season running two boats before the U nine was badly KSW damaged. KSW still exists, right? Yes. Thank God. <laughs> if you hear some of the shit they play, though, what what constitutes as like KSW music? You're just I like I don't want to know. You're like, damn, you're playing the White Stripes right now because I don't think I'm okay with that. I mean, that's way more recent, more way older than a lot of the stuff they play on 103.7 is the throwback station. Oh yeah, with Eric Powers. Uh, they started the season with two boats. The U9 was badly damaged in a flip involving court driver Corey B- Peabody during the final heat in Madison. They have since renamed the other boat, the U9, the U9, U8, the U9, to take advantage of their points, with J. Michael Kelly as the driver of the U9 now. Okay. Uh, and then lastly, we mentioned that uh, Beacon Plumbing... Is Corey Peabody a new driver? I've never heard this name. Yeah, within the last couple of years here. Is he from the Seattle area? Probably. Okay, good. Not, not sure specifically. Uh, as mentioned, Beacon Plumbing was not part of the uh, final day of racing in the Tri-Cities has become a contender with 68-year-old Dave Gilwalk oh at the wheel. But uh, uh, He's so old he could coach the Seahawks. Wow. Slipped Saturday, suffered too much damage to continue racing, now repaired for Seafair. Uh, so the U1 Miss Home Street, driven by Jimmy Shane, remains the class of the field. Probably like half of Dave Gilwalk's age, right? He's more than that, but, but not by a lot. Okay. Uh, Shane was disqualified from the opening final in Guntersville, Alabama, for exceeding the allowed time under 80 miles an hour prior to the race, but has won the last two finals cruising to victory on Sunday in the Tri-Cities. Uh, the Beacon Plummy has been the second fastest boat, but plagued by mechanical issues, so hasn't really been able to give Jimmy Shane kind of the, in the home street, kind of the the run that they've deserved over the course of the year. Is Guntersville like a traditional race site? They've added that within the last few years. Okay. Because they've lost traditional race site. Detroit has dropped off the schedule. They don't even race. No. Wow. Which was basically like, you know, Detroit and Seattle were the two primary spots for them in the You know? Yeah. (laughs) Uh, And the J. Michael Kelly and the Botano homes, the other biggest threat to Shane at this point of the the five total votes. (laughs) So it's Jimmy Shane, J. Michael Kelly, and Dave Vilwak. 68, almost as old as our mom. <laughs> That's correct. Dave Vilwak. Yes. Good God. <laughs> you think Dave Vilwak's heard of TikTok, right? Oh, I think someone's tried to explain it to him. Okay. I don't know if Bo Rising has made it to TikTok yet. I I mean, they're they're doing strong on Twitter at this point, which I think tells you where, That's where, where they are technologically. Like, they're like 10 years back at every single social media. <laughs> I, I feel like there has to be a strong contingent on Facebook of hydroplane racing fans. There's a group somewhere. I, I think there is, yes. Sometimes I have to go there to search for some unlimited hydroplane news. <laughs> so that's what we should be expecting for this weekend in Seattle. Is this on on TV? Is this on Cairo anymore? Or is that? I feel like the, the last one wasn't on Cairo, and that was a big deal. But I, I don't know off the top of my head. Uh, I guess I better need to figure it out because obviously I'm going to have to be streaming and watching the uh, the races from the uh, Storm game. Uh, and Pat O'Day, has he made it through the pandemic? Uh, sadly, Pat O'Day is not, not with us anymore. Oh, okay. <laughs> you knew that, right? I, I don't know if I remember that. And that might have been prior to the pandemic. I'm not sure on that one. Uh, August 2020, so yes, during during the pandemic. All right, well, sorry to hear that. Yeah. 
Well, on that note. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I see that the Blue Angels are back, right? There was a year that the Blue Angels didn't come to Seattle, and I saw the angry tweets, so I knew that the Blue Angels were back in oh, Seattle. Oh, that's how you can tell. Uh, yeah, I mean, they, they were here in 2019, so they weren't here the last two years just like the boat races. But wasn't there a year before then that they that they took off? There may have been a year they weren't here, but it wasn't any time recently. Not COVID-wise, but I think it was like 2018 or 17. I, I can't remember specifically. It kind of sucks. Like for me, I, I'm not a person who hates, I don't, I don't hate the Blue Angels on principle. I'm more indifferent to the Blue Angels, right? The Radiohead. You know, it's just like if they want to exist, that's fine. They can exist. I just don't care. But it's like, that's great that you're so close to each other. You watched Top Gun Maverick recently. Are you just like even more in on the Blue Angels than you've ever been? Well, so the, are they still flying FA-18 Hornets? So they're now flying the FA-18 E and F Super Hornets, which are slightly larger than the uh, earlier model FA-18s that they previously flew. Those are the same planes that are flown in Top Gun Maverick. Hello. I, I don't think I can ever get more hyped than when the Top Gun Maverick trailer dropped and there was the Top Gun rewatchables the week before or the week of Seafair. Like that was the peak oh of excitement. Gosh. That might have also been 2019. Uh, oddly, the last For time... For the American military complex. Well, oddly, the last time that uh, I saw the Blue Angels was not in Seattle. I don't remember if you caught them at all. But we were in the Bay no. Area when oh, they performed oh, actually, there I in did. 2019 for Blue Angels. <laughs> like, I don't know if you got... I didn't, I assure you. No, I was walking around and there were some Blue Angels occasionally. Right. And then Jade told me about chemtrails. Oh, well... Uh, yeah, but I, w- I watched that from uh, Marin County while we were taking one of the buses over there. So You sat and like, actually watched the Blue Angels. Yeah, it's a good time. My children have not asked about them. And and again, I'm in like pretty deep Renton now. And back in the day, even in the Renton Highlands, like they would fly over my house occasionally. Fairwood, those fuckers ain't anywhere near us. No. I, being out in West Seattle, I heard them but did not see them at all today it was definitely like i mean i remember growing up in boulevard park it was almost like a rite of passage you know you would like wake up especially because they come the, a day earlier than you expect them to that you know what's going on a day earlier than i expect them to because i'm not thinking of the blue angels and all of a sudden it's just like whoosh, right over your house and you're like okay i i guess we're in the heart of summer uh but it's kind of a sad thing. Like, I see the tweets and people complaining about it. I'm like, ah, it'd be kind of fun to hear that. Yeah. Really loud noise every once in a while. Well, maybe on Saturday you'll be in the city. Oh, while well, Enum Claw's playing? Yeah. Oh, that'll really make me mad. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yes, they, they will be performing right towards the end of Enum Claw's. Will they really? Yeah. What time do they start? 3.05. Three, oh, my God. Do they fly over Seattle Center? I'm sure they do at some point. I'll get a temperature from the band members of Ian McClaw on Blue Angels, <laughs> as all people who grew up in the Northwest. If the Blue Angels fuck up their set, that temperature is going to be very different. Oh, no. Yeah. Those KXP dads are going to be mad on Saturday. Well, we'll be back with a uh, full recap of Seafair next week. All five boats. We could do a <laughs> recap of each boat. <laughs> we even didn't even actually talk about all five boats. There's the U11, Jamie Nielsen. Uh, U91 is being driven by, why am I forgetting this off of, off of the top of my head? You just don't know that much about hydroplane racing. Well, Jeff, Jeff Bernard is driving the U91, right? Oh, okay. Yeah. So. 
as well as recap of our first Mar- my first Mariners game of the season. So there we go. A lot of a lot of excitement on next week's pod. And two words: last home yeah. game ever, possibly. Yeah. Finally, her curse is lifted. <laughs> Dragon curse in the super. We're getting into it. This is kind of fun, actually. I I thought this podcast would would be. I remember last year when we were in Oregon. Maybe this is the timing was earlier. It was. I was like, we were there in July. I was like the July podcast, but now we're getting into a lot of shit all of a sudden. Like, I mean, we weren't basic lifelong baseball fans then. Yeah, baseball baseball didn't even exist last summer. <laughs> kind of weird until September they started the season. Uh, but we've got the Seahawks starting, Husky football starting. The Sounders are going to miss the playoffs for the first time ever. Oh. We've got hydroplane racing. It's all going down. Subert's last game. There's actually a lot weirdly going on in Seattle sports. And uh, uh, I'm excited to pick this back up next week. On that note. Thanks for listening. Thanks. Thanks. <sighs>